0: But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him.
1: Thank you, Stephanie. Good morning, church family. How are you? Good. I've had a lot of people uh, asking me how I'm doing today. My wife has been out of town for the last few days. Uh, her brother uh, got married, and so she went up to Alaska to go be with her brother and family. And everyone's like, all right, "You know, all the kids by yourselves." I'm like, "I'm doing fine. You should ask my kids how they're doing. That's probably the the more important question." But doing well. Glad to see you guys here. Uh, if you're new, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here as well. Glad to have you joining us. And um, <clears throat> we we have a lot to talk about. Um, This passage right now that that is before us is just a beautiful promise of the gospel, a beautiful promise of our Savior Jesus, uh, but it comes with a lot of weight and it comes with a lot of uh, potential for misunderstanding. And so I want to really pray and ask God to help me and to help us to hear from him and to clearly hear uh, the truth from his words. Would you join with me in prayer? God, we we, we give this time to you. This is your time. This is your time. Word, and we are your people. God, I ask and I pray <clears throat> for myself that you would guide my lips and, and guard my tongue, that I would only speak and teach that which is truthful and helpful and edifying. God, I pray for each and every one of us. You'd give us soft, teachable, receptive hearts to be able to grow closer to you, to be able to grow uh, more assured of your love for us and your salvation that you have worked on our behalf. And so God, I ask and I pray for this time, would it be glorifying to our Savior Jesus? Would it be helpful for each and every single one of us? We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. <clears throat> so we are talking today uh, about what, what goes by some different names, but basically the, the, the doctrine of eternal security. And as you can tell even from this title slide, we're, we're trying to answer this question, how secure is your salvation? Like, really? Really? How Like, really, how secure is your salvation? How, how safe are you? And, and uh, reading a lot of different books, reading a lot of different commentaries this week, it's study and preparation. I came across this quote from Sam Storms, who's a pastor and author in Oklahoma. He's become a, a, a bit of a friend over the last few years. I, I would love to have him come and preach here at some point. But he, he has this quote that I thought, well, this just sets it up, right? He says, ask yourself this question. If Jesus wanted to teach eternal security, how could he have done it better or more explicitly than the way he does it here? If you yourself wanted to assert eternal security, how could you do it better than by using the words of Jesus in John 10? Now, with this idea, with this doctrine of eternal security... What happens among some Christians, particularly those who would be what you could kind of call the reformed camp or the Calvinist camp, is we love to get out, oh, big, thick books like Calvin's Institutes, and we love to, you know, get out our whiteboards, and we love to put together this whole big theological system and and, and talk through those things and, and I myself love the doctrines of grace and I myself am I'm, I'm about as uh, reformed as you're gonna find and you know, I'm not a four pointer, I'm a full five, I'm probably like a nine pointer at this point. I've even added a few and like I love these things. But here's where the rubber hits the road for me. Is I cannot approach this topic today. I cannot approach this passage because for many people in in our congregation, many people in our lives, this subject of eternal security, it's no abstract doctrine. This is no theoretical doctrinal debate. This is a pressing reality in their daily lives. I have had too many people sitting in my office with tears pouring down their face saying to me, I don't know if God loves me. I've been raised in the church. I know the scriptures. I've prayed the sinner's prayer a hundred times, but I don't really know if I'm actually saved. You guys, I cannot preach this. I cannot bring this to you today in the abstract because I don't know every one of you, and I don't know every one of your story, and I don't know where your, your heart is at, but I know enough to know that there are people in this room right now who have wrestled with this very question, does God love me? I asked for permission to share this, but I just met with one of our covenant members about three weeks ago, and she sat in my office and, and wept tears, first of pain, and then I, I hope and pray by God's grace of relief as we spent some time talking about this, and, and I had asked her if I could share a little bit of this. And she, said, she sent me an email, and we, we corresponded. And this is, this is the reality of what it looks like for a lot of people's lives. She said, I hid my struggle for so long. Sometimes I, I still can't believe that I can really be transparent without my world imploding. When I put myself back in that place, here's what came out I was a cradle Christian, born and raised in the church. So when the questions and the doubts came, I felt like I was drowning unable to find my way back to the surface. I fought it so hard at first. I was always taught that faith is being sure of what you do not see. But I wasn't sure of anything anymore. My anxiety made it impossible. I felt like an imposter each Sunday. Clammy hands, racing heart, shut down, don't make eye contact. It felt like a sick joke that God would provide salvation through the one thing my mind was no longer capable of, faith. It was for everyone else, not me. Thank God I'm not in that place anymore, not entirely at least. Little by little, I'm releasing my demand for certainty and relying on hope instead. And unlike certainty, hope isn't beholden to all my fears and objections. So this is no abstract doctrinal discussion today. This is real life for people in our congregation, real life for people in your community groups, real life for people in your neighborhoods. Now the context of where we've been, you remember the last couple of weeks, the the, the blind man, Jesus healed him then Jesus got up and, and uses an opportunity to say, hey, I'm, I'm the good shepherd. I take care of my people. My, my, the, the ones who belong to me really belong to me. And, and these, these other religious leaders have not done a very good job in kicking people out of the community. And, and, and when he says, I'm the good shepherd, that's a claim to authority, right? And it's both religious and it's even political. Like Jesus is getting political here. And so it's in that context that we pick up in verse 22. At that time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And that that phrase, how long will you keep us in suspense, looking into kind of the Greek behind it, it's, it basically is, how long will you raise up our souls? And come to find out, it actually can be used, it can be translated, how long will you keep annoying us? Uh, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And I, <laughs> I just love that. Like, you're really bugging us, Jesus. Would you please just be straight? Would you please, could you just be, could you just be plain for once? Now, here's what I want to ask you again. Context. Context matters. John tells us, at that time, it was the Feast of Dedication and it was winter. Do you know what we call today, in our culture, well, and in, in around the world too, but do you know what we call the Feast of Dedication today? You've heard of it. Hanukkah, exactly. It's Hanukkah. Jesus is celebrating Hanukkah here. Now, Hanukkah, for those of you who aren't Jewish... Uh, and maybe for some of you who are but just don't know, Hanukkah is a celebration of an event that took place in between the Old and the New Testament. You remember that, that, that the Jewish people were taken into exile. They were removed from their homeland, and they were taken into exile by various people groups, and eventually the Persians were ruling over them. They got to return from exile. This happened in 539 B.C. But here's the thing is once they came back from exile, things never really went that well. They were ruled over by the Persians, and they were ruled over by the Greeks. This, this dude named uh, Alexander, pretty great. Check him out. Uh, that was dumb. I'll fix that. Sorry. Egypt ruled over for a while. And then lastly, Syria, before Rome, Syria was ruling over them. And, and Syria had this, this king whose name is Antiochus Epiphanes IV, uh, and he was a terrible person. And in 168 BC, he launched into a persecution where basically he dismantled the entire religious system. Most of the uh, ruling empires would let the Jewish people, would let various people groups still do their own worship practices, but no, not Antiochus. He says, no, I'm gonna go in and I'm going to actually sacrifice pigs and unclean animals on the temple. I'm gonna force feed these Jewish priests to eat unclean animals and just violate, just desecrate, just absolute horrific desecration. This guy named uh, Judah Maccabees, he was one of the the Maccabean sons. His dad kind of got things started, but this thing called the Maccabean revolt, you might have heard of it. The Maccabean re- revolt happened in, in 167, and Judah, his nickname was the Hammer. He was like the, the Thor of the, the Jewish people in the second you know, temple period. He's Judah the Hammer. And he rose up, and they, they fought against the Syrians, and they, they drove them out, and this is the miracle of, of the only having enough oil for one day, but it lasted for eight days, and it's this kind of amazing thing, and they, they win, and then they have this big temple rededication ceremony in 164 B.C., and, and, and you can read about it in the book of First. Maccabees. Maccabees is not a biblical book, but it's, a, it's what we call an intertestamental book. It's, it's helpful history. It's not divinely inspired scripture. But you can read this. It says uh, in chapter 4, it says, early in the morning of the 25th day of the ninth month, which is the month of Chislev. By the way, time out. 25th day of this month. Do we celebrate something on the 25th day of something? Ah, the, yeah. You just got it. My daughter just got it. Yeah. Christmas and Hanukkah this this connection, and it's really interesting how some of the early church fathers saw the connection between the rededication of the temple and the incarnation of the Son of God in present physical form with us there's a, there's a there's a temple connection there. where does God meet with his people oh, in the in the old administration, it was in the earthly physical temple in the new covenant it 's through the temple of our Savior Jesus Christ. so all sorts of connections different sermon. But it says that on this day, they, they rose and offered sacrifices as the law directs on this burnt, altar, uh, b- a burnt offering that they had built. And at the very season, on the very day that the Gentiles had profaned it, it was dedicated with songs and harps and lutes and cymbals. And all the people fell on their faces and worshiped and blessed heaven who had prospered them. And so they celebrated the dedication of the altar for eight days, and they joyfully offered burnt offerings, and they sacrificed uh, an offering of well-being and a thanksgiving offering, and they decorated. They decorated. the Those of you who like to decorate for parties, they decorated the front of the temple with golden crowns and small shields, and they restored the gates and the chambers for the priests and fitted them with doors. There was very great joy among the people, and the disgrace brought by the Gentiles was removed. It is in the context of all of this religious political partying that Jesus is in Jerusalem making these claims. So this is very important because it helps us to understand why the people are so angry with him. They're in Jerusalem, they're celebrating this temple and, and they're celebrating a great, great leader, the great Judah, Maccabees, who, who stood up against our enemies and brought back proper worship of God and we're thinking about kings and, and religious leaders and political leaders and Jesus answered them. Verse 25, I told you and you do not believe. By the way, went back through and reread. Up until this point, Jesus has not told anybody who is Jewish that he is the Messiah. He told the Samaritan woman. He told her plainly. Remember that when they're sitting at the well and he's, I, I who speak to you am he, I am the Messiah. But all the Jewish people are like, are you the Messiah? He's like, I already told you. He's like, well, he kind of didn't. But his point was, was still clear. I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one, that's twice for those of you who are keeping score, is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What's their reaction? They pick up stones again to kill him. N.T. Wright, author and commentator, says this. He says, Every time the Jewish people celebrated Hanukkah, they not only thought about God and liberation, They not only thanked God for having the temple back again, they also thought about kings and how they became kings. And here is Jesus walking in the temple during the festival of Hanukkah, talking about the good shepherd, the real shepherd, the king who would come and show all the others up as a bunch of thieves and brigands. Never let it be thought that Jesus' message was anything other than controversial and dangerous. Never forget that the famous good shepherd chapter ends up with people trying to stone Jesus to death. So next time you see one of those paintings of Jesus, the, the very gentle good shepherd with the lamb around his shoulder, just imagine somewhere off screen, people with rocks ready to just pelt him. This is, this, <laughs> it's, it's political, it's very political. You guys know, like, presidential slogans, like, when they have campaigns, right? So the last few, um, both President Trump and President Obama, the slogans have been very, um, how would I put it? They're more generic. They're not as personal, right? So so Trump's was, make America great again, right? That's out there. Or Obama was, change we can believe in. But I like the old days of presidential elections where it was like, you know, Nixon's the one. Like, oh, that's pretty straightforward. (laughs) Or, you know... As you're all thinking about the great 1840 uh, William Henry Harrison where it was Tippy Canoe and Tyler too. Like that's his nickname. It's like the presidential slogan is like, it's me, y'all, right? Jesus' presidential slogan is, I am the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. It's me. I'm the rightful leader of God's people. I'm the rightful king of Israel. And here's the big idea for today is that those who belong to Jesus are perfectly secure. So that was kind of was related to the big idea of last week. We talked about Jesus being the good shepherd. You can essentially think of this of going two or three clicks deeper onto what I already taught last week. But we need to talk about this. We need to talk about what does it mean that if you belong to Jesus, you're perfectly secure. How secure? Really? How secure? How secure are we? Well, we are as secure as the word given. Jesus said, my father has given them to me. This means that there is intentionality on the part of God for you being in his family. Some people live with a sense of I snuck in. Some people live with a sense of I got in on a technicality. Some of you, Live with a deep sense of I personally did it, it's it's me, I I brought myself into the family. But Jesus said that you, if you belong to God, you were given to Jesus by the Father. There is deep intentionality on the part of God. Now, Christians, Christians, Christians fight about doctrines like predestination or election, and, and they are hard doctrines to 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 to. Reconcile with the idea of like free will and choice and how are we not robots? Here, I heard oh man, this is brilliant. I was listening to a lecture yesterday on a completely different thing, and, and the lecture, the the, the the teacher said, This idea of election, it's a family secret. This is a family secret. Hey, by the way, God really likes you. He really loves you, he really wants you to be a part of his family predestination or election or these things are never given to us so that we can sit back and feel cocky and arrogant and and prideful about anything. No, it's like, hey, did you know that God really likes you? He really wants you in his family. There's intentionality. You were given to Jesus by the Father. How secure is your salvation? Well, as secure as never. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And Jesus has authority to say that, doesn't he? I mean, at this part in the story, it has not yet happened, but he just last week said, I lay my life down, I pick it back up again. So he already has told the people what's gonna happen. He's going to die. He's going to die on a cross in our place for our sins, paying the price that our sinfulness deserves before a holy God. And then, oh yeah, he's going to rise from the dead on the third day. Conquering over death, conquering over sin, conquering over every enemy that we have as humankind. And so when he says to us, you will never perish in light of the resurrection, that's a pretty glorious promise, amen? You will never perish. In the fall, when we come back to the gospel of John, we're gonna see Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and he's gonna say it just again. He says, look, even if you die, you're not gonna die. Even if you die, no, trust me, you're not, you're not going to die. And by the way, I'm going to raise you up on the last day and you're going to live forever. It's going to be amazing. Watch this. Lazarus, come out. Well, preview of coming attractions. You will never perish. Given. Never. How about this one? Your salvation is as secure as no one. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Then he doubles down. No one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. When things are repeated in the Bible, that's a clue. Pay attention. Repeated words, repeated phrases. No one. Say, say no one. Uh, more conviction. Listen, no one. Okay, listen, here's the deal. <laughs> oh, I'm, not gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna answer objections in a moment because there are objections. Some of them are... are Quite real. We need to answer them. But what I hear people sometimes say is, well, no one, except for the person themselves, they could choose to leave. They could choose to rebel. They could choose to wander. The only problem with that is, if you got all these people who are in the hand and the grip of Jesus, and Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand except for the person themselves, that means every single person can be snatched out of the hand of Jesus. Last time I checked, God knew how to, you know, use proper nouns and pronouns uh, in the writing of his word. No one. No one. No one. No one. And as secure as God Himself. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus pulls out the God card. (laughs) Me and God the Father are one. You're not going to be taken out of my hand because my hand is the same as God's hand, and God is greater than all. D.A. Carson, another pastor and scholar, says this, If the Father is greater than all things or persons, then there is no force or being sufficient to sever the relation between the true believer and Jesus Christ. In short, as Paul would say to the Colossian believers, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. There can be no greater security. Praise Jesus. No one, never, can snatch you out of the hand of God himself. You are pretty darn secure. Now, by the way, this is a side note. I have a lot of those today. Um, I don't like the phrase that sometimes gets used, once saved, always saved. Have you ever heard that? I don't like that terminology. I, I, I don't I don't encourage the usage of that. Oh, once saved, always saved. It it to me misunderstands the nature of salvation. It makes it sound like as long as I prayed a prayer in the past, I can just do whatever I want to do, and I'm still always saved. It's like uh, it's like uh, you signed up for like whole life life insurance or something like that, and you paid it off early. And it's like okay, well, I can just do whatever. I can go, you know, I can go you know, cliff diving and chain smoking and whatever, and like I'm good. Like mm. so, I don't like that phrase "once saved, always saved." So can we? Um, I shouldn't tell you that because every time I tell you things that I don't like, you start posting them on my Facebook wall all the time. So I shouldn't say that, but I, I just did. I think this, the idea of eternal security or, or a secure salvation, I think that's a better way to speak about it than this phrase, once saved, always saved. I don't like that terminology. So why are there objections? Let's answer some objections, but first let's say why are there some objections? Okay, well, the, the first reason why there are some objections is because some people are wolves and robbers and they are terrible people and they need to repent or they're going to face judgment from God. What I mean by, by this is some people love to use fear to manipulate. And if they can convince you that your salvation isn't really secure and they can keep you dancing and they can keep you on the treadmill of religion and, and effort and output, then they can get money, time, attention, adoration from, from people. That is horrible. That's Horrible. And by the way, some people are accidental wolves and robbers. They might not wake up in the morning with this idea of, oh, i gotta, I got to use fear to manipulate people. i got to use fear to get people to do stuff. But they do it anyway. So watch out. Don't be an accidental wolf. So some people have objections to the idea of eternal security because they want to use fear to manipulate you, and they are wicked. The second reason why some people have objections to this idea of eternal security is because the devil wants to take what he can. Okay? Romans 8 says it about as clear as you can get there. There is nothing in all of creation, height or depth, angels, principalities, nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Again, the word nothing, i looked it up in the Greek. You know what it means? Nothing. And yet the devil, what he can't do, he can't take your salvation. I don't care what Charlie Daniels says. You can't lose your soul in a fiddling competition, right? Like, you, the devil, can't, he can't steal your soul. It's not how it works. But you know what he can steal? He can steal your joy. He can steal your sense of peace. When I talk with people and I pray with people, sometimes, you know, we like, I, I believe in demons. Like, they're, they're real. And they harass people. They, they can't own you. You're not owned. If, but, but Christians can be harassed by demonic spirits and be oppressed and be tormented. And, and, and one of the ways I see this happen, the number one way that I, I've learned over the years that the demonic is involved in people's lives is when loving, genuine, saved, redeemed, bought by the blood of Jesus, Christians sit in front of me and say, I don't, I don't know if I'm really saved or not. That's the work of the devil. It's from the pit of hell. So the devil takes what he can But the third thing is there are some objections that are actually quite valid. And so let's look at them. I have four that I want to address right now. The first objection, almost automatically, is this. Doesn't eternal security negate our free will? If you're telling me that Jesus holds me securely in his hand, and there's nothing that I nor anyone else can do to escape him, doesn't that get rid of my free will? Doesn't that turn me into a robot? The answer is no. Absolutely not. A couple of thoughts on this. First of all, you need to understand that in our cultural context, American, Western, product of the Enlightenment, we have an over-inflated sense, I would argue, of self-importance and liberation and freedom. You can go preach about things like predestination and election and, and eternal security and other cultures in the world, and they don't react the same way that many Americans do, because they don't live with this crushing weight of, I've got to be the master of my own destiny, I've got to be the captain of my own ship, I'm in charge of my own fate, I can do what I want to do, I can be what I want to be, and doggone it, if I'm going to be an astronaut, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be an astronaut. Like what, Whatever this is that has led to uh, the, 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 the culture that we live in, we're all products of our culture to some extent or degree, and I would argue that sometimes we have an overinflated sense of self-determination. There's a lot that I'm not in control of. Just uh, I listened to a podcast. It wasn't a documentary, but it was a documentary podcast about the discovery of DNA. It's really interesting to see the way our culture right now is wrestling with this idea of "I'm so free; I can make all the choices." I have genes that determine things like hair color, eye color, and even personality traits. And if I'm, if I'm genetically this way, I'm just going to be this way. It's like, well, hold on a second. Are we free or are we determined by our genes? And from a purely secular level, that's the fight that our culture is having right now. For us as Christians, though, we get to raise our gaze. We get to elevate our viewpoint a little bit. And we can say, yes, you and I are moral agents. We are not robots. We are not automatons. We are not puppets on a string. And yet somehow, mysteriously, in ways that we don't fully understand and will never fully understand, God is completely sovereign. And I would argue, too, that... that Your will is never more free than when you're in the grip of Jesus' grace. You want to really be free? Surrender your free will to Jesus. Let him be your freedom. There's a hymn from William Cowper that says it so beautifully. It says, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, can turn a slave into a son and duty into choice. When all my servile works were done, a righteousness to raise, now freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose his ways. Man, we don't write lyrics like that in the church enough anymore. That'll preach. Your will is never more free than in the grip of Jesus' grace. No, you're not a robot. No, you're not a puppet. But Jesus has you securely. Number two, if you preach this thing of eternal security, doesn't that just encourage people to run out and sin? Like if you tell people that they're really safe, they're really secure. If I I stand up here and I tell you that God's not mad at you because all of the wrath that you deserve for your wrongdoings and your wanderings and your rebellion was all poured out at the cross of Jesus Christ. He is your propitiation. He took God's wrath on your behalf. There's no more wrath left for you. But if you preach that, if you tell people that, won't they just go run off and start sinning left and right? Okay? I grant that that is a potential hazard that can't happen. But I would say that if that happens, the person has completely misunderstood themselves their sin, the cross of Jesus, the nature of what grace is—just has misunderstood. Now, maybe a genuine Christian—I don't know. You think genuine Christians can misunderstand things sometimes? Do you think a genuine Christian, a real person who really belongs to Jesus, can you know think wrong things? And oh my gosh, do you think a genuine Christian could even like I don't know wander for a while or do stupid do stupid things? Do you know any Christians? <laughs> <laughs> if you really knew me, like you really, really knew me, you, you wouldn't want me to be a pastor. And if I really knew you, well, I'll just leave that alone, but... To hear the depths that Jesus went for us to hear the grace of God revealed in Christ Jesus and then to turn and say, sweet, I want to go live in a way that's completely contrary to his wishes, that's just out of step with a, a true understanding of the gospel. It's Romans 6 addresses this, the Apostle Paul, you know, is, he, he, he basically raises this exact question. Wow, if God's grace is so amazing, like if God's grace is as amazing as, like, Paul's kind of having a dialogue you know, with himself throughout the letter, if God's grace is so amazing, well, shouldn't I just go out and sin some more so that I could get some more grace? He's like, absolutely not. You used to be a slave to sin, but now you've been set free. You don't want to go back and live like that anymore. That's not who you are. That's not how Christ has redeemed you. That's not, that's not who you are. And it's a, it's, a, it's a simple analogy, but it'd be akin to the lung cancer patient getting their, you know, the, the meeting with their doctor and saying like, wow, I am 100% cancer-free. My lungs are healed. I'm all the way recovered. Praise Jesus. I gotta go buy a pack of smokes. It's like you'd, you'd look at a person like that and you know what? Honestly, it happens. It happens. But you look at a person like that you say, you're completely missing the point. The misunderstandings of some people does not negate what Jesus said. No one can snatch you out of my hand. Number three, doesn't eternal security ignore all these warning passages in the Bible? How many of you were here when we went through the book of Hebrews together? Okay, good good bunch of you. You guys remember a few warning passages in Hebrews? Oh, by the way, we're in the gospel of John. There's some warning passages in the gospel of John. I was looking ahead into the, I think it's 15. Every branch that does not bear fruit, I cut off and I throw into the fire so it may be burned. Ah. Okay, Jesus, I'm listening. There are warning passages in Scripture. Don't drift. Don't fall away. Don't grow dull of hearing. Don't give place to sin. Pay attention. Wake up. Rub the sleep out of your eyes. Come on, let's go. Now here's the thing about God's word. Here's what's amazing about God's word. For the Christian, for the, for the believer in Jesus who has been redeemed, saved by his blood, placed securely into his hand, God's word is powerful and effective. God's word never returns back to God empty or void. Amen? Amen. So God's word, when a believer hears one of those warning passages, do you know what a believer does? They respond. Oh, my goodness. And God uses those warning passages to keep his short-sighted, wandering sheep like us following him. So no, we do not ignore the warning passages. What does this, what does this passage mean? What does it mean? Follow. Keep going. Persevere. Don't give up. Watch out. Some people start the journey and they don't finish. Some people spring up and there's like signs of life and then they they die out. Keep your roots deep. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's go. No, we do not ignore the warning passages. But I'm convinced that God uses the warning passages in your life and in my life to keep us secure in him. There is such a thing as false assurance. We've had the opportunity to talk about that. We've had the opportunity to talk about it. We will have more opportunity to talk about it later. There is such a thing, as we've seen throughout John, you know, belief that isn't really belief. But one of the ways that you start to tell if the belief is real or not is do we respond? Do we respond? Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to drift. And here's the fourth objection that I, I commonly hear. And it's just the it's the it's the experiential objection i well, I know people I know these people they stopped having faith they were walking with jesus they, it seemed like they were legitimate they and they then they stopped weren't they say weren't they really saved and now they're not saved so we don't we don't talk about salvation that way when you talk about they were saved, and now they're not saved. That's not a biblical way to talk about salvation. That's a revivalist way to talk about salvation. And I love revival, and I believe in the activity of the Holy Spirit, but I'm using the term revivalist to mean kind of this unique American heritage that we have where people go, and they, they preach a big sermon, and the bombastic stuff, and the lights, and the sirens, and the, and the, and the organ music, and then you got to get people to come down front, and they got to pray the sinner's prayer. And as long as you pray the sinner's prayer, boom, you're saved. That's where the whole once saved, always saved thing comes. I don't like that. Because how does the Bible talk about salvation? In all three dimensions. Something that happened in your past. Something that's happening right now, present reality, and something that will happen on the day of Christ's return. Salvation is past, present, and future. So it's just, it's just not, it doesn't jive with the way that we see salvation talked about in the Scriptures. They, say they were saved and now they're not saved. That's not how the Scripture speaks of it. It's, it's, you will be saved on the day of Christ Jesus' return. So here's a couple ways to think about it. Number one, Maybe, maybe their faith really wasn't genuine. And maybe they, they had a little spark of life, you know, a little like what Jesus talked about. It looked looks like a plant starts to grow and then just kind of withers and dies off. Maybe their faith's not genuine. Or maybe their faith is genuine and they're just being an idiot. And they're wandering and they're running and they're, they're being a loser and God's going to get them, right? In the, in the words of the great theologian Johnny Cash, sooner or later God will cut you down, Right? Either way, you got to wait till the end of the story. If you have a friend who is wandering or is at one time professed faith in Jesus, now they're not, you don't know the end of the story. So keep praying, keep witnessing, keep loving, keep reaching out, keep warning, keep pleading, keep weeping because you don't know. God did not invite us to sit around and try to evaluate the eternal state of someone else's soul. You know what he invited us to do? Love people. Preach the gospel with word and with deed. You're not God. I'm not God. We don't know the end of the story, so just keep loving them. And whatever happens at the end of the story, we can trust and know that God is not unjust in any way, shape, or form. You got to wait till the end of the story. I've seen I've seen people, I've seen it, who wandered for like a decade. Even to the point of renouncing, oh maybe there's God, I don't I don't I, I've seen it and then thriving faith. It's really hard. Because we're not God, and we don't know the end of the story, so you got to be patient. So here's where here's where I want to land this plane. Okay, that sounds pretty good. how do I feel it? How do I experience this assurance? Some of you do experience assurance and that's a gift from God and you ought to, you ought to rejoice and thank Him for that, but you can experience more assurance. Some of you experience assurance and you don't know how to, to share it with someone else. So let me let me walk you through a few things that, that I, I hope and pray will be helpful. The first way, if you want to experience assurance, is you got to respond to the gospel. For some of you here today, you've never truly responded to Jesus. You've never... Prayed, you've never said, God, I'm a sinner. Jesus, I believe that you're the son of God. I believe that you died and rose again. I believe that you are the door, the gate for the sheep. I, you know, you got to respond to Jesus. Some of you aren't experiencing assurance because you haven't responded to Jesus. You're sitting on the outside looking in. You're intrigued by Jesus. You're intrigued by these teachings. You're intrigued by this idea of the community of faith and the, and the church community, but, but Jesus is saying, come on, it's time to respond. So some of you need to do that for the first time today, to respond to Jesus in faith. For some of you, this is an opportunity to get your foundations straight. I'm not going to go there extensively, but boy, you got to go look at Ephesians 2. You got to go look at Ephesians 2. <laughs> the foundations of your salvation, right? The, the famous verse, many of you know it, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your doing it's the gift of God, not of works that no one should boast. And actually, if you go back a few verses into verse four, what does it say? It says, because of the great love with which God has loved us. So, so your salvation, you are saved by grace because of God's love, yes, through faith. <laughs> so this is a, this is a 21st century analogy. So Jesus, he talks about abiding in the vine and being connected to the vine and bearing much fruit and stuff. So we've, we've talked about how in the Gospel of John, the problem is we've been disconnected from life and we're slowly dying. So I've used this analogy of the phone, right? And, and, and it's kind of silly, but the more I press it, the more I think it really works. It's a very biblical analogy, guys, about the phone being plugged in. So here's, here's, what, here's, the, here's the way I'm gonna stretch the analogy, possibly to the point of breaking. You can tell me after the service. You are saved because of god's great love by grace through faith so faith is the cable that you plug into the wall to charge your phone it's important it is the channel that all this comes through but but you are saved by grace that's the power grid that's power plants power lines thousands of miles of cable Engineers, uh, you know Tesla versus Edison, hundred whatever twenty years of, of you know DC versus AC, like the power grid, right? Like so, when you compare your cable to the power grid, that's the difference between like your faith and God's grace, okay? Oh yeah, and then God's love, that's like electricity just in general, okay? Like that, that electricity just exists, right? Like there's just electricity. There's electricity, I think, literally everywhere. I'm not a scientist. I don't know. I haven't gotten to that documentary yet, okay? But like electricity, it's kind of a big thing, right? Like it just exists in the universe, right? God's love is so massive and so huge. That's electricity. God's grace, that's like the power grid. Yeah, your faith comes along. Yes, your faith is important, but it's not the biggest deal involved, and even if you have a name brand, brand new out of the packaging, you know, iPhone cable, or you got some junky one that you picked up for 25 cents at a yard sale, it's still going to charge the phone, and your apps will still do the good works that they were created unto do, right? So, 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 which leads me to my next point, which is this. Have a little bit less faith in your own faith and put more faith in God's grace, it's not about your faith. Jesus said, "If you have faith, even as small as a mustard seed. If you got a junky cable from a yard sale, and it its kind of like the—and the, then, then you got like—and then you got like the lint that gets in there, and you can't like plug it in all the way. That's like sin that gets in your life. I can stretch this for days, guys. <laughs> Put your faith in God's grace, not your faith." Your faith is not unimportant. It's just that God's grace is so much bigger than your faith. Faith like a mustard seed. A pastor, J.D. Greer, he says this. He says, faith is not the absence of doubt. It's continuing to fall Jesus in the midst of doubt. Sometimes your faith is going to falter. Sometimes you're like, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's, that's to be expected. Faith is not absolute 100% certainty of everything all the time. It's certainty that God is good And even when you don't understand a million and one things, you can rest your head on your pillow at night knowing that God loves you. And then the last way I would encourage you to to experience this assurance is to entrust yourself to community. And I just put the note there, sheep is plural. (laughs) Throughout the whole passage, my sheep, plural. I looked every single time, they, 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 my sheep, plural, plural, plural. You're called into a family. You're called into a community. You're called into a people. And some of you are not experiencing assurance because you're off on your own and you're not having people in your life who can A, prod you along and encourage you to keep following Jesus, or when your heart is feeling weak and your faith is feeling flimsy, they can look at you and say, but I see Jesus in you. I see his spirit in you. I see his grace in you. Take heart. Take heart. This is amazing, Amazing promise, right? In our culture, if your health insurance company finds out that you have a pre-existing condition, you're dropped. Your car insurance finds out that you got a, you know, a speeding ticket, you're dropped. That boyfriend or girlfriend that you're so excited about, that new relationship, they find out about your previous relationship, you're gone. All of these things that we try to hide, all of these things that we try to cover up, we experience this in our lives. No wonder we feel a lack of assurance, but our God is not like that. He's so loving. He's so secure. He's so good. You have been joined into the body of Christ. And Charles Spurgeon, I'll close with this. He says it well. Are we not members of his body? Shall Christ be dismembered? Shall he every now and then be losing one limb in another? I, I love Spurgeon. Can you suppose that Christ is maimed? I scarcely like to think, much less express the thought of here or there, an eye or a foot or an ear wanting to complete the perfection of his mystic person. No, it shall not be. Members of the body of Christ shall be so vitally quickened by the heart and by himself the head that they shall continue to live because He lives. When a man stands in the water, the flood might naturally have power to drown him, but as long as his head remains above water, the stream cannot possibly drown his feet or his hands, and because Christ the head cannot die, cannot be destroyed, all the floods that shall come upon the members of his body shall not, cannot destroy them. So rest in him. Jesus, Jesus, I pray that you would help us in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our faltering, in the midst of our doubts, to know that our name is written on your hand, that we are safe and secure with you, and though everything else in our world and even everything else in our lives preaches uncertainty, that when we come to you, Jesus, as our good shepherd, we can know security. God, I pray for those today who particularly are struggling with just feeling that assurance. God, I ask and I pray that you and your grace would remove that heavy burden from their backs. God, would you allow Sound City Bible Church to be the kind of place where people can be honest and real and truthful about their struggles and their doubts and their fears and their worries. God, would you help us as a church community to practice patience and grace and love with one another, even in the midst of our weaknesses and our doubts and our fears. God, would you Help us to be the kind of people that go out and preach this message of, of, of you can be sure that God loves you. You can know that God loves you because Jesus is our good shepherd and he laid down his life for his sheep and he rose again from the dead to, to prove all of his claims. God, would you help us to embody that message with boldness and with confidence in our, in our neighborhoods, and our, our workplaces, our, our schools, wherever we may go. Would you enable us to respond to you with love and with faith right now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to respond. Whew. All right, that was, that, was, that was intense. We're going to respond. We're going to do it in a few ways. The first way is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. Listen, before you guys pass the buckets, just wait for one second. Listen, if you are going to give today with even the slightest inkling in your heart of I have to give so that God will still love me, do not give Just don't. You're loved. You're loved. So if you're going to give, give as a loved person. Give as a child draws just a really, frankly, ugly looking picture. Like, here, Dad, I made you this thing. And it's like, like, God doesn't need your money. All right, you guys can collect the offering now. Thanks. 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, today, as as we pause to to pray and to hold in his presence for a moment before we celebrate, I just want to invite you as you eat and as you drink to think of that idea of, you know, as as a bread and wine would would nourish the body, so this meal right now nourishes our souls. That this is one of the ways, one of the means of, of God communicating his grace to us that we eat and we drink. And we are sustained. And when our faith is weak, we eat and we drink and we remember that our faith is not what saves us. Because of his great love, his grace is what saves us. Whoever therefore eats or drinks the bread or the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself. Pause. Take a moment. Reflect. And then, so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I'll pray again. Musicians will play instrumentally for a moment and you've got time to hold and to pray and to let God search your heart. Where is my faith? Where is my faith more in my faith than it is in your grace? God, I ask and I pray that you'd search our hearts right now. You'd strengthen us as we come to the table. We, the sheep of your your fold, we, the children in your family, we, weak, fearful, at times wandering, God, thank you that our salvation is as secure as the bond between the members of the Trinity, the Godhead. So let us rest in that. We come to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.